Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to episode 112 of What Most People Think. I hope you've had a good week. I had a busy old week last week. I don't know if people would have might seen me on Have I Got News For You, which was eventually uh, postponed and went out Monday night at 10.35. So it's sitting there on iPlayer. And uh, thanks for the feedback and stuff. Obviously, you know, the patrons, they're like, we didn't see enough of Jeff, which is, I, I feel like that in life fucking generally. Do you know what I mean? I always feel like there could be a bit more Jeff, but obviously they've got a lot of different things that they've got to get into the show. And uh, I was assured that uh, for a debut, I got a decent amount of gear in. But if you want to see a bit more Jeff, this sounds like a pitch for an OnlyFans account, uh, is that you can watch the Have I Got A Bit More News For You, where you'll see some some other stuff, what I said. Uh, We have a guest here, a co-host, another person coming back on the show uh, for the third time on, which means they're upgraded to a co-host. Welcome back, Chris Snowden. Hello, Jeff. Lovely to be upgraded. Thanks very much. I mean, upgraded is a sort of a way of saying more responsibility and still no money, I suppose. In this instance, yes, but I'm going to consider it that I'm a first-class passenger on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, you're a part of BA's executive club. You've got a number of reward points that won't actually translate into anything tangible. Yeah, I was on a flight last week for the first time in about two years. Fuck, wait a minute. How was it? Not that pleasant, really. It was full. I'll, I'll tell you that. I mean, a lot of the flights obviously are cancelled now, so they're going down from sort of one a day to one of most places to like two a week or something. I had to change in Frankfurt. I was going to Croatia. Yeah. And um, you just got to wear a mask the whole time, you know, and I'm not a massive mask hater, but that's mainly because I hardly ever have to wear them. But when you actually have to wear them for, in this case, like seven hours, you know, because you've yeah. got to wear them as soon as you get in the airport, it's probably the only kind of, thing you do where everyone genuinely wears a mask it's not like going on the tube where yeah, it's well, exactly, down to exactly. one in three now well we all know that the authority the consequences for acting up on a plane are just that bit that bit higher there's a sort of a, a multiplier isn't there on a plane if you take the piss nearly everybody obeys the rules don't they on the on, on flights uh, yeah. even if they're naturally unruly you do get the odd case of course we read about in the papers people trying to open the door in midair and stuff like that but well, you yeah, have to be very drunk I guess a lot of the time you just don't know what country you're flying over. So if that country happens to be a particularly punitive, like if you're flying over Belarus. Belarus, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't want to be taking the piss over Belarus. Um, I mean, we mentioned just briefly then, Mars. I mean, one of, one of the main reasons we're going to chat today, and this will come a bit later in the show, is about kind of COVID, you know, what happens next. We see there's constant talk about the numbers and there's people obsessing from both sides for their usual outcome. So we will we will get into the, the weeds. Is it weeds or reeds? We're going to get into something of that. Um, I just want, there's a couple of things that quick, I wanted to catch up with you on was I, I was talking about this uh, with somebody the other day petrol crisis remember that <laughs> mm. short-lived wasn't it that was an interesting little period in British public life so, I mean first up one thing is that it has generally gone back to normal in most places as you say it was a bit more acute in the uh, southeast I do slightly miss the euphoric rush of finding petrol I mean I, you know there's always mm-hmm. this, it was like you know when you found paracetamol back in lockdown one just a feeling of, <laughs> of accomplishment, you know, driving along at 2am and just noticing one pump still open. That was, you know... Yeah, I, I, it must must be a, a big problem as a stand-up touring comedian, right? Yeah, I mean, the only good thing is, is you're on the road late at night. And, and what I did find, and this is a little tip for uh, future petrol panics, is that uh, m- motorways are probably a better place to go. One, because people tend to go to their local petrol stations, right? They, have, they hear something on the radio... They just drive around the corner and you sit for two hours at Morrison's. If you're willing to get on the M1 and go a couple of junctions, 
you know, like people won't tend to be on a motorway unless they absolutely have to be there. And also it costs like one pound fucking 70 for an egg cup full as well. As the exactly. Which is what proves what I was saying at the time, which is the petrols, petrol should just be made more expensive. They should yeah. have followed the invisible hand. If I was running a petrol station, I'd be going, right, people are literally queuing up for this. I've only got so much. I'm going to jack the price up. And my self-interest would actually benefit society because lots of people who are just topping up the car because they've read about a panic wouldn't yeah. bother going. And that didn't happen. And I wrote something for the critics sort of asking, why didn't it happen? Why, why weren't people being more greedy? And the consensus answer from people on Twitter seemed yeah. to be that it was about goodwill. And there was a sense that if people felt exploited by these evil petrol pump owners, then yeah. they would boycott them in the future which I don't think is probably true. But, yeah, certainly they would have been shamed. I think the Daily Express, just because some petrol went up by, like, 3p in a few places, had a front-page uh, headline saying something along the lines of, you know, how dare they exploit us. And it's true. If, if they put a price up, it, would have, it wouldn't have even caught on as a thing, right? Because there was never anything behind it. It was never really a shortage of petrol. It was totally, it was a complete vicious uh, circle. Oh, so they... if they put the price up, it, a few people who really needed it would have got the petrol. And the majority of people who was turning up with jerry cans because they were scared it was kind of the end of the world wouldn't have bothered. I mean, there is that, that question is first up, I mean, as you're right, there wasn't really a massive issue to begin with. It came from a meeting between the government and uh, the petrol industry in Britain, and it was a leak, right? So you have to ask yourself, who leaked it and why? You know, whether or not they intended for there to be a full-on panic, but certainly what they wanted was an easing of uh, uh, rules on HGV drivers. Maybe that's a legitimate thing to go for, but yet it was a leak, someone did the leak, and there was a, there was a reason for that. And in terms of how, I mean, you bring up a fair point. You often think about petrol, like you're right, when it goes up 3p, and, and when the price of crude comes down, tabloids will often say, bring the prices down and the name and shame. They could charge, I mean, like, it's just one of those things, they could charge whatever they want at this point. I mean, I don't know what would be the top point at which people would stop using petrol. Well, I mean, it's a competitive market. People talk about collusion and all this stuff, but it's actually pretty competitive. So the reason prices don't go through the roof, um, I mean, they are expensive, but that's largely because of tax. The reason they don't go through the roof is because they've got competition. Same as the re you know, same reason, you know, the supermarkets can't charge 50 quid for a pound of sausages because somebody will charge 49 pounds, someone will charge 48 pounds and so on. Um, that, there's nothing surprising about that. The only thing I found surprising is why they didn't actually whack up the prices when there was a genuine sort yeah. of supply and demand issue because they could have done and that would have sorted out the whole problem in actual fact, but they didn't really do that. I've noticed prices actually gone up a bit more now than they did during the actual panic. Have you seen that? It's like £1.45 seems to be quite common around my neck of the woods. Whereas during the panic, it, they kept it solid at one thirty-three or whatever. Admittedly, they didn't actually have any petrol to sell, but that was the price. It was yeah, it was, it was quite. It was, it was a notional price, wasn't it? <laughs> it was sort of like it was sort of like a bid on a guide on, price. <laughs> if I had petrol, I'll tell you something. I'll, I'll sell. I'll sell it the cheapest. I mean, speaking yeah. of the press and prices of petrol, I had a letter here uh, from uh, Gary Child who who pointed out that the Daily Mail. I mean, you know, talking about the degree to which the press cranked this thing up. The Daily Mail ran an article in the morning of, of the fifteenth of. October and just below the headline they ran an image and it was of cars queuing for petrol pumps so this is at the back end of it when it was actually starting to ease and somebody noticed that it said that diesel was 83p a litre so it may just have been that the Daily Mail were trying to find a photo of queues at the pumps and you know we, we all I mean that's a retro price isn't it 83p a litre that's sort of late 90s price I would think. yeah yeah, yeah fucking Gen Z is listening the library photo perhaps well, there was that period, wasn't there, where you would, you know, when it exceeded a pound, it would always be the cost would then exceed the litres that you were getting. Yeah. But 83p a litre, it, it would run at quite a lag. I mean, we'd have all been in the queue, as Gary says, we'd have all been in the fucking queue if it was 83p a litre. Yeah, that too, right? That would have been fine. That would have been fair enough. That's, and then I would have been selling petrol uh, on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be one of the most scummy things to do. Six litres of petrol on eBay. Oh, here's the thing. You, you talk about the marketing competition. I've got this theory now with, you know, like uh, uh, everyone's now saying they've got shortages and you need to buy their shit immediately. I, I'm sure that some companies have legitimate shortages. I'm sure that some would eventually realise what a great way of selling mince pies in the middle of October, really. I mean, there's got to be a degree. Am I just being a cynic here, Chris? Or are some of these companies thinking, if we can get people to panic buy toys now, they'll probably do another round of spending in early December. 
The, well, well, with mince pies, I will, because I'll eat them. Um, just a brief chat here. Part of um, what made my week mental last week was I was doing Times Radio on Friday, and uh, obviously it's supposed to be quite light-hearted afternoon stuff, a few recipes for the weekend, and then we had the, the sad news of the breaking story of uh, David Amos, uh, the murder of David Amos, and, and I was on air at the time, and... Um, yeah, there's some situations where you are in over your head in terms of having to do breaking news. Uh, it's an interesting thing, Chris, because like, you know, I don't know about you, but when I've seen newscasters and when they do that grave voice and they seem emotional, I've always thought it was really pretentious because I thought, oh, they're just doing this. They're loving the limelight and stuff. But then because I had to break some very sad and awful news, really. And, you know, I don't know what the listenership of Times Radio is, but there's a good few people listen to it. It's just not a nice thing. You know, there's one thing I learned is that it's just sad. And you think, well, this is a sad thing. And there'll be people hearing this for the first time. And there is so it's something unique, isn't there, about, about the murder of an MP? It, it, is, it is big news, isn't it? It does affect us quite deeply. But also, you know, you see this stuff. I, I, you know, I wasn't obviously on the radio when the news broke. I was, I was on Twitter, probably. And you see news like that. And my immediate thought is, right, no more Twitter for me today, then because I just can't bear to see how it's going to be weaponized by various different uh, obsessives, you know, whoever they may be. Uh, you just see, it's the same stuff every time as well. I mean, one of the stupidest ones, and you get this without fail, when there's any kind of violence at all, mm. is someone like, you know, the likes of David Schneider or James O'Brien, they're, they're the kind of people who would tweet this. They put out some old Daily Mail front pages, you know, crush the saboteurs or enemies of the people and say yeah. oh, how, how did how did political discourse get so violent i wonder you know, it's like yeah. what are you talking about it's yeah. been bizarre the whole conversation ever since we found out who the suspect is that no one's kind of acknowledging the, the very likely motive well yeah i mean this is the way what i wanted to talk about was that, that at first you know initially angela rayner's name was was trending and a lot of people's initial thought was this man has been killed because he's a Tory MP and it was some sort of left-wing attack. That was a lot of people's instinctive reaction, which I found a, a little bit odd because I sort of thought, well, for me, that you know, it's a stabbing so, you know, recent form in this country sadly shows us that terrorism is, is a, a prime suspect for this, along with random psycho who lives in a town, you know, and I would argue that the terrorism and random psycho are probably quite close to... Uh, each other and and people ran away and like you say there's something massively distasteful about people going oh look at this awful thing that's happened isn't this a great opportunity for me and look don't get me wrong I thought what Angela Rayner said I don't think as a frontline politician if it I don't think there's any relationship between what she said and what happened but if anything gives her cause to think maybe I shouldn't be talking like that then that's no bad thing from my point of view and like you say you have a lot of people go what a brilliant opportunity for me to make my point about the Daily Mail and and the thing that has been lost in all of this is that this was, you know, this seemed to be highly likely to be a terrorist attack. And we're having no discussions, no meaningful discussions about that. And why is that? Is it, it people are, are people uncomfortable about it on a race point of view? Is there just no more to say on it, given how many that we've we've had? Um, I think people are uncomfortable talking about it. And also, of course, you know, this this hasn't gone to trial. We don't actually know what's going on. We don't know very much about this guy. Yeah, he, yeah. he may just be genuinely mad. He may, of course, be innocent. So we we, we don't know. But mm. yeah, of course, people don't want to have this conversation about ISIS and jihadis and so on. Partly because, as you say, there's not much more to say about it. There isn't really a solution that I can see. Mm. But also, you know, several politicians have hijacked this and somehow taught, turned it into a story about online anonymity on social media yeah. and i just find it absolutely baffling and um mark francois you know one of the great figures of the banter era has turned to the dark side has stopped being a funny man about brexit and is now proposing what he calls david's law to to ban people from using social media and anonymously I, I i've never been comfortable with this idea of using dead people's names in laws i mean i think the americans started didn't they with the brady bill and megan's law and this kind of thing it's it always cool. seems yeah. right yeah. exactly it's sort of you know it's deliberately emotive to make yeah people, i mean it almost seems not to think seriously if, if something can be affecting enough that you, you that we can take action because like i say we can't deal with mass examples of things but if you give a singular example of something that, that, that moves us. I mean, the one bit of legislation I always remember in this country, like when you're emotional about stuff. So there was a period in the early 90s where a lot of uh, dogs were attacking kids and there was a couple of instances where kids died and stuff. 
And this was then we had the Dangerous Dogs Act, which was a, a really shitty piece of legislation that was kind of rushed through because everyone felt really sad. Yeah, and, and famously I, awful piece of legislation. I do think you have to have a natural suspicion of, st- of decisions taken in, in the light of big events, you know, or yes. review them. Exactly. And but at least, you know, with, with Megan's law, I think that was something to do with paedophilia. Brady Bill was something to do with gun. You know, they were at least related to the person yeah. we're talking about. Whereas David's law mm. is going to be nothing to do with, you know, jihadis. It's going to be to do with with social media, something yeah. that, as far as I know, he never campaigned about. It certainly had nothing to do with his death, as far yeah. as we know. So this is like a whole new level of of using this kind of technique like the equivalent to push through of, um, bad legislation. Well, we respect what he worked for, so we've made Bedford a city. You go, no, I think you missed the point here. It was Southend that he was trying to make a city. <laughs> right, yeah. Everyone's kind of exploiting it for their own for their own reasons. You know, it was the the, the right wing were kind of exploiting the Angela Rayner stuff, which had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Um, the the left are exploiting, you know, the hateful headlines in the day Daily Mail. it's the all it's all kind of it's all so pathetic and you just think well really we should just you know, see see what the jury say and, and analyze it later really but certainly don't be using his death God, to push through some wrong. legislation about something that as far as i know he didn't even have strong feelings about i mean he might not even agree with banning people from using social media anonymously you're such an old fogey snowden wait for the jury's <laughs> verdict mate come on mate it's 21 that's boring Right, let's um, let's go for the cuss count for last week. So it's a solo episode, as you'd expect. Um, 0.88, so just under a swear a minute there with one cricket reference. And arsehole is just increasingly becoming a go-to swear word there. Maybe that relates to what you're saying, uh, Chris, about it being a tricky 18 months and there's been a lot of culpable arseholes. Uh, new patrons, uh, we've got Simon Gibbs here. Simon Gibbs, Gibbo, very easy there. Very easy nickname for Simon Gibbs. So, uh, Macca McCulloch, is, I, I guess is a real name. Macca McCulloch. Or, or does Macca McCulloch sound like a really hard-tackling centre-back from Roy the Rovers? Oh, Macca McCulloch got in there. Saved him down. Um, I mean, that was proper groundskeeper Willie voice there, wasn't it? That was culturally insensitive. Uh, we've got a new patron, Annette Buck. Annette Buck. A buck. That's uh, I, I mean, look, I, I'd imagine in there that whatever your experience of primary school was, wasn't that great with a name like Annette Buck. But I admit, it's a powerful name. That's a good business name, isn't it? It sounds like the name of someone who give a TED talk on on rationalising your life into the six things that you need. Dave P. Dave P. Just sounds like a hard house DJ. Dave P. Just a, a, an absolute cocaine casualty. And Colin Dyer. So we have all those exciting names, and then we end up with Colin Dyer there, who could be almost like a sort of uh, sort of a Alan Partridge's cousin. Uh, just before we get I mean, into Colin it, Dyer, you never know. I mean, <laughs> Colin Powell died this week, didn't he? Oh yeah, he, Colin. he managed to he made managed to make the the name Colin sound cooler by changing it in a weird way. Oh yeah, yeah, with the with the Y, Colin Powell. And then there was this interesting thing with where he when, when he died when. People were sort of weaponizing that, saying he died because you were unvaccinated. And then a lot of people pointed out he was also 84 uh, and he had Parkinson's and another over number of other comorbidities. But yeah, it's because other people didn't get vaccinated, definitely. Um, we're going to do a quick thank you and a fuck you. I took my son to uh, AFC Wimbledon's new ground, New Plough Lane. Uh, at the weekend and it just honestly I can't say enough if, I know a lot of people who are disenfranchised with top flight football because uh, it's shit it's an absolute bin fire of morality I know that I have you know I have right wing economic views but when it comes to football I'm, I'm a raging socialist so get yourself down AFC Wimbledon fan owned and it, the atmosphere was incredible it was my son's first game and you, you sort of forget having not been in amongst a crowd for a while Chris is like how emotional it all is so he got a bit cranked up himself and then Sheffield Wednesday scored after five minutes, burst into tears and didn't fancy it. And I was like, I had to put it, it was very, as politely as I could that we'd got two trains to get there and I mean, three trains. And uh, long and short of it was that I didn't give a fuck if Sheffield Wednesday was 6-0 up. We were going to watch the whole fucking game. You know, I put it as delicately as I could. Um, oh, good on you. So you should get again. It's about getting your, your value for money. Getting value, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's, it's interesting you look at it that way. I was looking at it as setting like a life lesson. You were like, "Fuck that, we paid money, 
the state foot game. Uh, and the fuck you is two places. I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but we, we both said just before we started recording, Chris was like just constantly thinking that we're we're cooking up a cold here, just suddenly getting sweats. A big part of that is big businesses, buildings, retail outlets seeming to base their thermostat on what the weather was yesterday rather than what it is today. Really? I haven't, I haven't noticed that so much. You know, you're not noticed it. It's, like, it's sort of like they're going, oh, it's October. The, with the, or with the, or, our heating should be at this level. You go, yeah, but it's 19 degrees outside. And then you go in there and, you you know, at our age, we get ill. It's not funny, the idea of thinking that we're getting ill. Because if you were cooking up a cold when you were 19, you go, oh, I might be ill for a few days. Now it's like... You're going to have the cold, then you're going to have the long version of whatever the cold is now. Which is, <laughs> you, everything's got a long version now. And well, this, you, this this new cold supposedly does last a very long time, doesn't it? The, the worst cold ever, they call it. And this, I'm more scared about getting this cold than, than COVID. I've had COVID, but I wasn't yeah. particularly scared about getting COVID. Um, didn't particularly enjoy having it, I would say, but I wasn't, I kind of thought it was inevitable I would get it. Whereas colds, I think you can avoid, particularly since I'm a big user of first defense which I swear by, but first defense, you're supposed to use it when you think you're getting a cold. Mm. And I've been Googling you know, the evidence behind this. It says it's clini clinically proven. Somebody's approved it as a yeah. medical product, a medical device. It's not a medicine, but it's a medical device. And there's, there might be some loophole that they've jumped through there. I don't know what the difference yeah. is. But um, yeah, so obviously sometimes you think you're going to get cold, you're not going to get a cold. So you can't really do a randomized control trial with people who think they're getting a cold. Yeah. Um, apparently there is some evidence, personally, my anecdotal evidence, and let's face it, Jeff, the most important evidence, the strongest evidence is anecdotal evidence, is since I started using it about 10 years ago, I think I've only had one cold, and even that wasn't that bad because I kept on banging the first defence at my nose. Have you ever used it? I mean, I just point out, we, do, we don't have advertising on this podcast, Chris. I do feel like... I, I am funded by VIX. I, mean, I, I do think at some, I do, I really at some point you go, you're going to hit me with a slogan, first defence. Last defence, <laughs> the only defence. I feel like that's coming... Clinically up. proven. You know, the worst one you get as well is like, um, if you've been ill for a while, like uh, like several weeks, you know, everyone has one of these colds, you go, I just couldn't shake it. You know what I mean? I was run down. You'd always get someone at some point, or this was a thing maybe 10 years ago that would recommend echinacea. But the thing about echinacea was they go, you'd have to do two droplets every year. Like I had a really complicated thing and it goes, and after four weeks you'll start to feel a lot better. I go, I'd imagine that after four weeks, you'd recover four from weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a big claim, is it? You'll, be, you'll feel better after four weeks. Yeah, even long COVID, you should have probably recovered after four weeks. That's a lot. Now, the, the, uh, the, what I like about the first events is that you squirt up your nose and it really hurts. Yes. So it, it appeals to two of my things, um, my sort of childlike view of, of the human body, which firstly is like no pain, no gain. If yeah. it hurts, yeah, it's got to be doing you good. And secondly, just the idea that these sort of there are basically green germs fighting with white blood cells in my body, and I, I can flood it with this acidic stuff that going up my yeah. nose. Somehow that helps to to drown them out and, and win the battle within. So I like it conceptually. I think it works in practice. I'll probably come down with a cold next few days and and disprove this. But the reason I was so worried about getting it was I had to go to the Tory conference, and then a couple of days later. I had to go to a funeral, then I had to go to the Battle of Ideas in London all weekend, then I had to go to Croatia. And I, I wanted to do all these things, firstly. Secondly, I didn't want to be turning up coughing and sneezing at any of these things, particularly at the airport to go to Croatia, because this wouldn't let me in the country. Yeah. So I've got past that now, so I suppose I can sort of afford to be ill, but I still don't really want to be. Well, I mean, there is a stigma about being a bit ill now that there frankly didn't used to be. It's almost like, you know, in those kind of like zombie-type films where there's the group that are still fighting against the zombies, and if one of them thinks that they've been bitten, everyone else is looking at a sign right, yeah. that their eyes yeah. gone white or something. And now if you have a little sniffle, you're going... It's all right, guys. I'm okay. I'm still, I'm still old Jeff, and they're they're slowly kind of putting you behind a in a hazmat suit behind a fucking lead door. Yeah, I don't think that's an entirely bad thing, actually. I think if anything good comes out of this whole pandemic episode, maybe people will not keep forcing themselves to go in the office when they're really unwell. You know, rather than that being seen as quite a, a cool and brave thing to do, yeah. they might see it as being really quite an anti-social thing to do. To yeah, and, and also infecting you know, people. The way that the argument has changed, you know, we got we got a feeling almost like intuitively more pro-union without unions. You can just say, I don't I don't feel safe being forced forced into work 
uh, with this sniffle now. There will be a point in time where companies will be a bit more reticent about making those sort of demands. But we've moved sort of intuitively on to COVID here. So let's have a chat about the main focus of this show, which is COVID, what happens next? Okay, so let's just uh, get a bit of context here. We've been, we've had freedom since, what was it, late July, all, all, all social distancing removed, concerts, football matches, all this sort of stuff. Obviously, in, in Wales and Scotland, they're bringing in, yeah, Scotland, whatever England's doing, Scotland's going to be doing something slightly more draconian, so we can take that as red. But we do have uh, a rising number of cases. Uh, and again, anecdotally, I know more people myself that have had COVID, got COVID recently. Uh, deaths are, are a steady, you know, just over 100 mark uh, a day, at the moment, now, Chris. Obviously, you are your job and and your kind of uh, discourse involves a lot of discussion about what is and what's been happening uh, with COVID. So, just just to sort of set the the tone for us, what's your general position been on COVID, lockdown, vaccines? Where are you? Uh, you know, if, if one side is zero COVID and the other side is smiley, smiley, keep Britain free, it's a pandemic. Where do you fit in in all that? Well, I would say pretty much bang in the middle. I've got contempt for both extremes really my position from day one and i wrote about this for the telegraph before the first lockdown so no one can say i'm rewriting history is that you can make a sort of classical liberal libertarian free market economics argument for lockdowns if the threat is big enough and it's the only way to deal with um with the spread which i think in march uh, it was and then I thought the lockdown lasted far too long. They should have, you know, ended it much earlier. You get to October and they're talking about another lockdown. And I'm looking at the figures going like, no, I don't, I can't see the NHS being overwhelmed at these current levels. The, the restrictions in place and in like the Northwest and a few places seem to be working. You know, numbers were genuinely coming down over in Manchester and places. So I thought that calling a lockdown at the end of October was, was premature. I was really against that. And I just hope that we could sort of muddle through, really. And I thought maybe we can get through the whole Christmas period and winter. Uh, yeah, well, there'll be a lot of people in hospital and people will die. But I thought we could get below the point where the NHS was overwhelmed. I, from day one, when, when Boris and Chris Whitty were talking about that as being their sort of red line, we, we can't allow the NHS to collapse. I kind of went along with that. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have done. Maybe I, sh- maybe I should have you know, had a higher or lower threshold for what's acceptable. But I kind of went along with that as a basic rule of thumb because um, it seems you know, really bad if someone has a car crash and they can't get treated because all the intensive care beds are, mm. are, are filled with people. Um, and But then you get into December, then you've got the, the UK variant, since renamed the uh, Alpha variant, just to not offend British people. And um, and then case well, was it today, or, or did the Indian variant come along? It was the Indian. It was Indian. They had to retrofit yeah, yeah. the trying to go. Look, even if we genuinely don't give a shit if English people are offended, <laughs> we should probably call it the Alpha variant. I think that was about the size of it. But maybe the people of Kent are grateful that they're no longer um, <laughs> identified with it. I mean, we anyway, know what the Kent, Kent variant really means it means up some nutty bloke outside a pub pub in Rochester. That, that is that's the mutant variant that I'm thinking of when I think of the Kent variant. So yeah, we get up to December and obviously the numbers start going up, you know. And, uh... Yeah, and they're going up really fast. And it's it's the middle of winter when you'd expect things to really uh, get as, as bad as they're going to get. And at that point, you've got to go, well, you know, I hope that we can muddle through and keep this you know, under wraps with various restrictions. There were masses of restrictions. Yeah. You, know, you had the scotch egg stuff and all that at the time. You could only go to a pub on your own where I lived. And it still wasn't working. So what else do you do? I mean, either you, you let it rip and you know, see what happens, or you, you've got a lockdown because it's the only thing that's ever really worked. So I support the lockdown. And then loads of people said, how, oh, you know, Snowden's a, a turncoat, Snowden's a, a, a wuss or whatever, um, a fascist. And, um, and yeah, then after that, I've had to block about two and a half thousand people on Twitter. <laughs> they identify me and Dan Hodges for some reason, like uniquely with the, the third lockdown. Um, but I, oh, again, I thought that kind of went on too long, although then the Delta variant did um, put a spanner in the works. My policy back in January was, you know, open the pubs, close the airports. I really thought that was the most mm-hmm. important thing. Once, once I should explain that I really, I don't know if I would have supported the winter lockdown had we not had vaccines. 
I mean, one yeah. of my reasons for opposing it in, in October was like, well, what we're just kicking the can down the road. What are, yeah. We, yeah. what are we trying to achieve? But once we had the vaccines and they seemed to be working pretty well, it seemed to me totally reckless to just go, actually, no, this is the point now. We just go for herd immunity by letting people get the virus. We, we, in the middle of winter, we're going to see how many people can get this. And we don't care if the NHS collapses, how many people die. When we've got vaccines in our hands, we're already jabbing people. That just seems stupid. Whereas you've got an end goal then. Okay, we're going we're gonna to vaccinate the vulnerable. First it was the over 70s and it became the over 50s. Now it's the over 11s. But anyway, we're going to vaccinate them. There is some kind of end goal to this. And then, right, and... And then, and then we can kind of let it rip. Um, and effectively, that's what we've done. As of Freedom Day, July the 19th, we've let it rip. And I'm totally in favor of letting it rip because we've done everything we can, realistically. We've vaccinated. Everybody wants the vaccines. If you don't want to get vaccinated, then, you know, fine. That's your funeral, potentially. But I'm not in favor of doing anything else now at this point because, you, you, again, it just seems like you're kicking the can down the road. You made you made a very good point on Twitter the the other day, which was you know one of the things that made made me get in touch was that you said that you know once you've offered vaccines to everybody, right, and everyone that's up for it has got one, and we are we are kind of at this point. I'd imagine if you if you haven't had a vaccine by now, like there's a specific reason for it, okay, and yeah. and so. You can't do much more than that. Obviously, there's going to be the booster rollout, which I think is particularly important for the for the for the vulnerable. Because in yeah. the meantime, a lot of people have now had COVID, and, and you know their body would have reacted uh, in that way. Yeah. What 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 is the plan going forward? Because then they might point to another variant, but that is always um, a, a risk. And it seems like yeah, I suppose you know in a way the kind of centrist position changes over time, so it can be to do quite radical things like a lockdown whatever your logic for it is quite a radical thing now is as you say you know is to do nothing like there's nothing more we can do can sound radical and um, it's been interesting because i'd imagine throughout the process of this you've sort of found yourself at odds people with people you'd normally agree with has that been something that's happened a lot yeah yeah a lot um and, 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 and i found myself agreeing with lots of people i'd normally disagree with you know so uh well i take someone like james Dalling poll who yeah. kind of, you know slagged me off, unfollowed me, called me a, a fake libertarian, and what have you? Um, yeah, disagreed with quite a few people. I had to block a few people, and I uh, used to be reasonably friendly with on Twitter. But yeah, there are only people on Twitter. It's not like I've fallen out with many people in in real life. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been interesting. Um, but I've been impressed actually by the number of sensible centrists. I think economists I have to say have done pretty well out of the whole thing. Mm. There's been a quite a few good sensible people um in the free market world at the IA, the adam smith institute have been pretty sensible sound and mostly correct all the way through this which is more than you can say for a lot of epidemiologists and certainly more than you can say for a lot of you know right-wing pundits for one of a better phrase so what 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 in your view of epidemiologists and right-wing pundits what have been the worst excesses of their viewpoints what have been the worst things that they've said uh, well, on the right wing side, it would be we've reached herd immunity in June 2020. Um, you know, Toby Young's famous article in which he said that the virus has disappeared into thin air. There will be no second wave. There'll be no winter wave. Um, and of course, he's accepted he was he was wrong about that. Uh, and we all make mistakes. I, I certainly made mistakes last year. Um, I was more optimistic than I probably should have been about the number of people who had the virus and, you know, how things would progress. And on the epidemiology side, it's not all of them by any means, but I mean, their predictions have been shockingly bad, okay? <laughs> and for the most part, now people are always gone about Neil Ferguson's prediction from way back in March mm. last year and say that was totally wrong. Well, we don't know if it's totally wrong because that was a do nothing scenario and we didn't do nothing. We did, we did more than he asked actually. So the fact that we didn't have 500,000 deaths does not prove or disprove him wrong. We will never know. And of course, throughout most of the pandemic, they've been predicting things. And there's always been a nod and a wink to politicians. It's like, this is how bad it's going to get unless you do something. So they are inherently, I think, political documents, yeah. most of these projections. But then you get to this summer where it's like, you know, if you have Freedom Day on July the 19th, this is what's going to happen. Well, suddenly that's a testable pro proposition, OK, because it did happen. Hmm. Um, and it doesn't look like we're getting anywhere close to what they project yeah, i mean there's the medium type scenarios were hundreds of thousands of cases a day and 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 and, and there were plenty of people saying that the deaths and and all the main metrics would be worse than they've been at any other time in the pandemic 
Yeah, up to 7,000 hospitalizations a day. It's, you know, they, they've given themselves a huge amount of wriggle room. If you look at some of the, the Warwick and Imperial uh, scenarios, you're not allowed to call them forecasts or projections for some reason, but they are scenarios of what will happen in the future, which to me sounds very much like a prediction. But anyway, yeah. so, but they, they've given us so much. The confidence interval, intervals are enormous. I mean, almost everything bar the dead being resurrected is kind of covered by, by these projections, scenarios. And yet they're still wrong. We're still below their most optimistic end of, 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 the, of the projections. So they've been really bad. And I think it would be very interesting to find out in a future inquiry why they have been so bad, why they were so wrong, and why people like, for, for example, Andrew Lillico, um, you know, who has no particular training in this, James Ward, who's just a guy on Twitter who's taken an interest in it, he's just a mathematician, I think. They've been much closer to the truth to the point now where quite often the, the newspapers will quote someone like James rather than quote someone like... But is it to do with is it to do with ultimate responsibility? I guess there was when that Delta variant, uh, sorry, when the 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 it's the Ken variant. We know it's the Ken variant. When that struck, uh, it, it yeah, I think I think regions stuck in my mind better. So the Alpha variant when, when that struck, I mean, it would the numbers were were huge, you know, and it, and it was kind of scary as they were they were going up. I guess that leaves a big gouge in your mind, like when your job is. You know, you've got some, and you, do you think they've got one eye on the history books as well? It's kind of like it would be better to to sort of make a worse prediction and and, and it to be more benevolent than to yeah. go in low and for it to come in high. So what they're doing is actually the opposite of what they should be doing, which is objective interpretation of the data. Yeah, Neil Ferguson said something very interesting um, in I think August, having predicted that, and this really was a prediction. <laughs> he having predicted that a hundred thousand cases a day was apt absolutely nailed on the only question was whether it would get to 200,000 cases yeah. it was pointed out to him that in fact cases had dropped quite quite a bit uh, during the course of July and they were currently at whatever they were 25,000 and he said and I thought this was very revealing that he's happy to be wrong so long as it's in the right direction mm. now now as a human being I suppose you can say that's true right you don't want people to be yeah. getting infected with COVID and die but as a model uh, he should really be equally disappointed to be wrong in any direction wouldn't you yeah, think? try saying that if you worked at a hedge fund i mean you talk about like the, the data and what the worst case scenarios at this point i think yesterday's numbers were in the high 40s uh, again you know we're sort of seeing consistently for weekdays it's over 100 deaths is, is there a scenario here is there a threshold that you think numbers wise where this government could be pressured into or would start considering further lockdowns and restrictions yeah, I think that in theory there is, but I think the numbers would have to get to a point that they've never reached before in this country and haven't really reached anywhere in the world pretty much. Maybe in India earlier this year, maybe there's a couple of places where they've seen um, the kind of case numbers that would lead to the num number of hospitalizations that would inspire the government to do more. But it would, I think, come down to hospitalizations. Mm. Um, and they are still well below a thousand a day in England and have been all year or at least since the end of the um, the winter wave. I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, I, I don't, the truth is obviously I don't know. There's lots of people who still haven't been infected. I'm surprised that there hasn't been more of an outbreak in London, quite honestly, because um, it's the least vaccinated part of the country. And yet it's just been trundling along. So that'll, solid. In, that'll interest people, least vaccinated part of the country. I mean, obviously we get the impression of London. It was very virtuous about wearing face masks and, you know, it has a, a, a sort of profile, an image of itself, which is more progressive and caring, <laughs> a self-image that's more in that direction than the rest of the country, but it's less vaccinated. Yeah, it, it's it's a, it's an ethnic thing, basically. Right. You've got the ethnic and religious groups who tend to not be so keen on vaccinations are, are disproportionately found in, in London. So um, I wouldn't be surprised to see an outbreak. I wouldn't be surprised to see an outbreak anyway. The outbreak at the moment is in the southwest where they didn't have many infections at all for most of the pandemic. I guess London has had more infections anywhere else. That might be part of the reason why it's, it's doing better now. Who knows? I'm not going to make any... Um, predictions on what's going to happen. I suspect that things will curl over quite soon, actually. Um, but I really would be very, very surprised to see. You would have to be like 200,000 a day, you know, for the government to really be concerned, I think. Um, and we've never really gone above about 60,000 before. So it's hard to see that happening with booster shots. So many people have been vaccinated and so many people having had COVID. 
That's yes. the, the main thing, really. And we've, we don't really know how many people have had COVID now because the, the vaccines have ruined the antibody tests. Like Nearly everyone's got antibodies now, so we don't know how they got them. But I would imagine about half the country's had COVID by now. Have you had COVID? Um, yeah, well, like a lot of blokes, I think so. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... It, Man COVID. Yeah, 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 the super cold. It was even out of the super cold, because, you know, someone like me, a bloke like me, I wouldn't be laid out by something like that. Probably probably actually the next pandemic, Chris, I'd say that what I've had is actually COVID-20. Hi, just cutting into the chat here with Christopher Snowden. Hope you're enjoying it. A bit of facts, right? Somebody who knows his onions. I don't know where that phrase came from. I don't know when. Maybe there was just a period in human history when knowing about onions was like a really big deal. You know what I mean? Like There weren't many exciting foods around that time, but a guy that knew his onions, I mean, they're like potatoes, but with flavour. I'm just recording this little bit. I'm a, I'm a, ho- I'm a hotel, I'm a holiday inn, I'm a motorway holiday inn, just fighting the urge to order another dessert uh, at this point because that's, that's what that's what they make you feel like um holiday inns by motorways make you feel like you just want to eat or masturbate or have a bath generally you have a lot of baths when you're at hotels anyway can, can you tell someone's lonely and um, by the way sorry for the slight sound issues at the beginning of this i think that my yeti mic is going on but because of the fortunate way that the podcast is funded I, that's why you don't hear any adverts on it He's, he's completely Patreon funded. I will be investing in a new mic soon because I think it's got a short in it because sometimes it sounds all right. But at the beginning of the podcast, when I listened to it back, I was like, oh, Jesus. So please don't desert the podcast. I know you sound queens out there will be like, There's, there is genuinely a community of people that go, oh, the sound's slightly wrong. I'm out. You know what I mean? The kind of people that just walk out of a cinema seven minutes in if they hear one cliche. So I am on it. I'm aware that the sound quality uh, isn't where it should be, and I hopefully sort that out for next time. Uh, just tour stuff, really. For the remaining autumn leg of the tour, this Friday uh, I'm in the Marine Theatre in Lyme Regis. Can I can I tell you, though, on Wednesday night I'm in Verwood, and on Friday night I'm in Lyme Regis. And anyone that would know their geography would know that those places are really close together, but they're separated by a day. So... I don't know if someone, you know, in terms of the scheduling of the tour has some sort of fucking vendetta against me, but I have to finish forward, drive all the way back to where I live. It's about four hours. And then two days later, drive all the way back. So, I mean, you know, if I'm being tracked by some police or something, they will think that I'm involved in some shady shit. Uh, Thursday, the 28th of October, the old Rep Theatre. Maidenhead sold out. Milton Keynes has sold out. And then City Varieties on the Thursday, the 11th of November, the last day of the autumn leg of the tour, is pretty close to sold out now. I mean, that's a big old room, the biggest room of the whole tour. Then we get on to the spring leg. I'm just going to pick out some dates here. I am at the Old Market in Brighton. That's already selling well on the 5th of February. Glee Club Cardiff. The lead mill in Sheffield. I swear to God, Sheffield, you're another one of these days where everyone's going, why'd you never fucking come to Sheffield? What are you going against Sheffield? And so far, nothing. Uh, no, I mean, there's a few tickets sold. But uh, 11th February, the Grange Theatre in Northwich. Now, I know that when it fir- the, the sites first landed, I think Lincoln, Norwich and the Grange Theatre weren't working. So if you wanted to buy tickets for those, please get back involved now because I think the links uh, are working. I'm staying in Winchester tonight. I'm in Winchester on the 27th of February. Uh, I'm at the old fire station in Carlisle. I swear to God, Carlisle, if I'm coming up that far north, mate, you better show me some fucking love. Yeah, Northampton. I'm coming back to Northampton, despite despite the fact it didn't sell well last time. I, I, I'm not going to give up that easy. Oh no, I think that's Wellingborough, the Castle Theatre in Wellingborough. For some reason, it says here Northampton. I'm going to Bath, the Comedia in Bath. Uh, we're going to Plymouth on Friday, the 18th of March. Uh, the new Brighton Floral Pavilion, which isn't in Brighton at all. It's in fucking. It's near Wigan or somewhere in the northwest or somewhere they play a fucking rugby league. Uh, Lincoln, I'm back in Lincoln on the 26th of March. Huddersfield, 27th of March. Wolverhampton, Worthing, Portsmouth, a big old room we're playing there in Portsmouth. Some good sales on the board already. The Corn Exchange. <laughs> Do you know what it says here? I'm just reading shit off my Excel sheet here. Can you tell? And me listing things. And it says uh, the Corn Exchange, Melrose, and then there's another column that says City. And it just says UK unknown. So if you've ever had a feeling in Scotland or particularly in Melrose, that us down south, we, we, we're a bit ignorant. I think you're, you're probably right. Back at the South End Palace Theatre on the 29th of April, back in South End, my spiritual home, the first place I ever sold out a show. Then uh, Manchester Stoller Hall. 
uh, Maidstone, Swindon, Ipswich Corn Exchange, another big room, and then the real cherry, the icing on the cake. The 29th of May is now on sale. This is my only London date of the spring tour. I'm going to be in the new Wimbledon Theatre, the absolute mecca, the first place that I ever saw pantomime. Do you know what I mean? He's behind you, like all the classics. Come on, children. I mean, some of that was just going back to meet the stars in their dressing rooms. But it was a different time. But uh, do come and see Uncle Jeff at the Wimbledon Theatre. And I might have a little bag of sweets for you. Know what I mean? Okay, let's get back to the chat with the brilliant Christopher Snowden. So at the moment, you know, you get a sort of a lot of the, you get a certain kind of person on Twitter who, who has an inbuilt need to imagine that everything that's happening in Britain is the worst, you know, Plague Island, hashtag, all that sort of shit. And they will compare, of course, our figures with what's happening in the EU. I mean, we do test more here, which is which is one thing, but, you know, obviously our, our mortality figures are higher as well. So first up, is there a difference in metrics there? And the second issue is that, those countries, I think, you know, Germany, Spain, Italy and France, to an extent, haven't unlocked to the degree we have. So is there a chance that inevitably they have to do that at some point, that they're going to get their spikes then? Yeah, I think from what I can tell, you know, listening to people who know what they're talking about, most people are going to get COVID at some point, And the Delta strain is so infectious, they'll probably get it fairly soon, i.e. over the course of the last six months. So... I don't think it matters greatly that the UK has got higher case numbers. In a way, it might be a blessing in disguise because more people are getting kind of natural immunity over the course of the, the, the summer and autumn. Um, wouldn't surprise me at all to see the EU doing worse than the UK over the course of winter. In fact, if you look at deaths rather than cases, and you make, you make the valid point that we do a huge amount of testing in this country compared to um, most, in fact, all the European countries. Um, if you look at deaths, which is a more reliable indicator, the EU is about exactly the same level as the UK in terms of COVID deaths at the moment. Um, and the EU is going up quite sharply, whereas we're not. So I think at this stage in the game, over the course of the next six months, I think every country is going to suffer more or less equally. Mm. Unless, of course, they go into lockdown or what have you. But I really don't think there's any appetite for that in, in Europe either. And also, I don't, I'm not sure it's true that all these other European countries are, are you know, really uptight and everyone's going around in, in masks and stuff like that. Certainly wasn't my experience in Croatia. Um, uh, obviously, countries vary. But, I mean, I, masks have never made a great deal of difference to the overall number of case numbers. I'm not saying they don't make any difference at all. And there's mm. not some places where it's probably wise to wear them. But, you know, you bring in a lockdown... And you can immediately see plummeting of, of case numbers, you know, pretty much everywhere. Um, but you don't see that when mass mandates come in at all. So the idea that you get from independent sage and, and such like saying, oh, we've got to do something about this. And it's like, well, what do you want to do? Right. Because even you're not saying anymore, we want to go into lockdown. And the answer is invariably like masks on public transport. It's like, yeah, that'll, that'll sort things out. You know, I mean, it's just such a kind of trivial, trivial stuff there. Um, they're they're asking for so yeah i mean basically let it rip hope for the best everyone's been vaccinated um on pretty much everyone so yeah I, I, at some point i think we need to start more or less ignoring it you know i don't think there's a case for continually flashing up you know 100 people have died of covid today on the news there's mm. 1300 people die every day of various different things and i'm going to start sounding like a smiley now a bit but you know we don't put up the number of cancer deaths the number of heart disease deaths um, or even the number of you know, so road accident deaths. And if we did, we'd probably be much more neurotic and morbid as, as well, a nation. I absolutely. I mean, you, you mentioned Smiley. I think we mentioned it earlier. Should we d define what this is? So this is like, this is the more extreme end of, of lockdown scepticism where the, it would include, for example, things like uh, not anti-vaccines, possibly. Uh, yeah. So, and then the reason you call them Smiley is because a, lo a lot of the that smiley face image has become a sort of symbol of the movement. And yeah. so you've had your run-ins with them too. Yeah, they, they, they adopted the smiley uh, last winter. And the idea was, it was sort of like an anti-mask thing, really. You know, we can't see people's faces anymore. This is yeah. inhumane. I kind of agree with that, you know. So we'll adopt the smiley face to show that we're still kind of, you know, I don't know, we still have emotions. We still you can, can smile through adversity or whatever it was. Anyway, it was adopted by people like Michael Yeadon, Ivor Cummings, and, you know, some of the worst... Um, you know, pro-COVID <laughs> activists on, on Twitter. Um, they've since more or less dropped that, although you do see it at their marches quite a bit. 
they've now adopted a pink flower. You must have seen that around. Mm. You probably don't know what it means. Most people aren't aware of what it means. I'm not sure to this day why they actually picked the, the pink flower. It had something to do with taking over the Lib Dems. There was a plot that these people were going <laughs> to infiltrate the Lib Dems. They liked the Lib Dems because the Lib Dems voted against the Coronavirus Act. Yeah. So they thought we're going to take over Lib Dems and make them a, a full-on smiley anti-lockdown party. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so th- these these people represent the what was initially just anti-lockdown. And I, I totally accept there's an argument for the cost and benefits of the lockdown. Never yeah. never denied it. I just think it's a really close thing, and it very much depends on how you weigh up the costs and benefits. And when you can't really be certain between the two sides, my view is you should opt for the one that doesn't involve killing hundred thousand people. You know. I do think that the uh, the idea of taking over the Lib Dems is a funny thing. It's sort of like, well, they're going to take over Blockbuster Video or, or other stuff that was like at its last legs in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, the, the Lib Dems have quite successfully managed to stop any real liberals joining the party for the last 20 or 30 years. So I think they'll probably be able to see off a few a few smileys. Anyway, yeah, they're going to sniff out anybody that's got any sort of genuine liberal intent. So they're exactly, yeah. frog marched out of uh, out of conference. One thing that's been interesting, I remember right at the beginning of this, I read something that was saying, and I said this on the podcast myself, was that it does seem that, you know, there was a rush in a way to write end of term reports about Britain. I mean, because obviously a lot of people hate the Tories, they hate Brexit. So that, that has created a sort of super level of criticism. I don't think we've seen on many things, like a level of scrutiny on all government action. And I remember, so all the time they were sort of said, we've failed, it's gone wrong, we've had a bad pandemic, you know, before, before we'd really allowed it to breathe. And, and, and it does seem that you can only really judge a country's performance in a pandemic after about two years. Like that seems to be, you know, because you've got so many different phases to go through. Yeah. And so, I mean, first up, is that is that a fair point? And secondly, I mean, if you look at the perception of Australia at one point, and obviously their numbers are still incredibly low compared to other countries, but now they seem to be running into all sorts of ideological and kind of libertarian <laughs> issues. Yeah, I would say that every country has cocked this up in their own way. I don't think there's really been a single country that's got it right, apart from possibly Taiwan, but they'll probably have a massive outbreak eventually. You know, every, the loads of countries have been held up as being you know, success stories from day one. Obviously, the zero COVID people love New Zealand on, on Australia. There were countries like Ireland that seemed to be doing quite well until suddenly they weren't. A whole load of Eastern European countries were being praised for their um, for their response. Hungary was held up. Um, by a guy called Martin McKee, he's a public health um, nut, uh, in the British medical journey. He said Hungary have done a fantastic job. And then Hungary, I think Hungary is like second worst in the entire world now. Hmm. Um, so everyone's been hit at some point and everyone's got it wrong. What, what the Kiwis and the Aussies got wrong was basically not, not vaccinating people when they had the chance. You know, um, they're caught up a lot now because they've had to. But the Aussies in particular spread a lot of fear. They're, I mean, the politicians in Australia spread a lot of fear about the AstraZeneca jab, so that put people yeah. off having it. And my understanding is the AstraZeneca is the only one they could physically manufacture in Australia, so that was a bit of a problem. Um, and I think now Melbourne and you know the state of Victoria has been in lockdown for longer than anywhere else in the entire world. Um, and yet they're still going to have to get to grips with lots of people dying because lots of people will die. It doesn't matter if you have 100% vaccination, people, people are still yeah. going to die, die with this. And to be fair, the Kiwis have accepted that zero COVID is, is still a, is a pipe dream. Uh, the only people who haven't accepted that are independent sage, as far as I can tell. So we've made lots of mistakes. But yeah, we, we've got the 25th highest you know, death rate from COVID in the world. It's not, not great, but we're not we're in the top three anymore. Yeah pushing for the Champions League spots there, you know, we, I think yeah. if we have a really good push, if we have a really bad winner, we can, you know, we can get up the table still. I mean, it's... Oh, uh, go quite possibly. There's, there's everything to play for, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I think, by, but yeah, we, the, the mistakes were made. Let's, let's put it that way. But they were made, I think, by pretty much every country in different ways. You mentioned zero COVID there. I mean, it just, it, it sort of seemed that this idea that the, the, the approach to COVID should be to eliminate it in all forms everywhere and that, that almost no restriction or no measure is, is too great to, to, to achieve this. It just seems to me that that is a very 2020, 2021 mindset that you might not yeah. have got at any other point in history where there have been people that have been sort of cultivated and reared to be so fearful of risk, but not just, I mean, we're all, we should all fear risk, but to have such a short-termist view on it, to just think, like, I, I, need, I need to sort of package and file this away right now without any real thought for whether or not this is a sustainable way 
I mean, it's almost like shutting down free speech, isn't it? It's just, well, if I stop this person saying this thing, it doesn't exist anymore. You know, if, if we shut our borders forever, lockdown forever, COVID's not a thing, well, at some point, it will appear somewhere else. I think it's mainly performative now from the people calling for zero COVID. You know, when even old Jacinda is uh, is abandoning zero COVID, then you yeah. know it's not possible. If they can't do it in New Zealand, and they have in the past locked down successfully and got cases down to zero, they've done it a few times. You know? yeah. uh, the fact that they've had to do it a few times obviously shows us it's quite tricky to keep it up for very long. But anyway, they have they have succeeded. They can't do it. You can't do it with the Delta variant. It's just too it's just too infectious. So I think it's mainly just performative, virtue signaling, as you might say, from the people who are still calling for zero COVID and blaming Boris Johnson personally for every single person who does. Hashtag um, Boris the It's kind of like being, you know, it's like I'm anti-poverty, I'm anti-war. Well, you know, so is everyone. But I mean, it's not actually a, a you know, there isn't a practical way to never have a war and not have any poverty. You're just showing that you're a nice person. So yeah, I, be- I believe in zero COVID too. And also I'm, I'm, I'm totally against cancer as well. You know, I mean, so what? Unless you've got cancer. some workable plan to achieve these goals. and no I mean, also, a lot raising. of people still seem to die of old age, Chris. I mean, that is something we need to get a grip on. You know, I mean, like, people still tragically dying at the age of 110. Let's stop that. Let's get people living to 140. I mean, it's just all forms of sadness and difficulty. Let's get them down to zero. Cap- Captain Tom died at the age of 100. Tragically, I was I was looking at his Wikipedia page yesterday. Actually, we really did lose our minds as a country. Yeah, in in the winter lockdown, I've forgotten all the conversations about like let's build a statue of him and put him on the fourth plinth and let's have a memorial stone in in uh, Westminster Abbey. Let's give him a, two hundred thousand people signed a petition for him to be given a state funeral. Yeah, and of course he caught COVID in in hospital. I mean, that's the great the great irony is if it, if it wasn't an NHS, he might still be with us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, goes to hospital with pneumonia, gets COVID in hospital and dies of it. Yeah, let's put that on the print. Captain Tom, beloved by the nation, ultimately indirectly killed by the NHS. Could have lived to 101. Could have yeah. lived to 101. His life cut tragically short. <laughs> uh, listen, well, that was a great chat, man. Let's, uh, if you've got time, I'd love to just do a quick letter for you before we go. And like I say, I mean, obviously, Chris is fully gemmed up on stuff. If you've got reactions to any of this stuff, email in what most people think UK uh, at gmail.com. Uh, we've got one letter here, which I think is particularly appropriate to Chris. So let's have a look at that now. Okay, so this one I picked out for you, Chris, because there's a lot of skin in the game that you've got here. This is I don't know if this is Liz from Weatherby or Liz Weatherby, because there's no comma between her name. Uh, so she says, I see myself as a, a libertarian. Me too, Liz, but I don't know if I fully deliver on the lifestyle, I have to say. Um, however, after the last year, my I think probably she means COVID and whatever, my husband has taken up smoking again. He hasn't smoked yeah. for 20 years. He's gone back to it with real passion. I'll be honest, I just don't get smoking. No one's ever had a great night out on the fags. I, I absolutely agree about this. It's very difficult for people that don't smoke to understand what the buzz is. Um, but anyway, she finishes by saying, he's his own man, but I'm less attra- attracted to him now and feel like I should just be able to tell him to stop. Now, what I thought was interesting about this was I'd imagine this is not uncommon, that people have gone back to crutches and various things throughout lo- lockdown. So that is of interest. And you know, if, you ha- if that has happened with you, do email in. Is there a point where libertarianism does not penetrate the unique bond between husband and wife or, or partners, where if it's that fundamental and she's got to live with the geezer, should she be able to just tell him to stop? Uh, yeah. I mean, she's not the government. So, you know, libertarians aren't against wives telling their husbands what to do. Yeah. Such, one possibility you haven't raised, Jeff, is that this guy is following the science and he doesn't want to get coronavirus. <laughs> Yeah, because there is that. I mean, it emerged quite early that smokers seemed less likely to get COVID. Yeah, and there was loads of it since. I've got on my blog, I think, about 29 studies I found now, only one of which doesn't show that smokers are about half they've as just likely to get COVID. They've got loads of other shit rattling around their lungs and COVID just can't find any space from all the other gunk that's in there. Well, this is the interesting question. What actually causes it? They're, they're, apparently, there are biological mechanisms by which nicotine could actually kind of fight off the, the virus but when they've experimented with vaping vaping seems to have no effect whatsoever so the banter hypothesis is basically it's the tar it's the tar that's good yeah what the fuck is apple blueberry and cinnamon gonna do fighting off covid but you get like a, a, t- 20 marlboros i mean you've got to, you've got to come in strong if you're going to take the place of whatever marlboros leave on your lungs 
Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's the only time I've ever been flagged up for fake news on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook, but like April last year, I wrote about this emerging evidence about smoking and mm. um, and and COVID. Uh, and to be fair, it was a spiked article, and it did headline it: "Smoke fags save lives," which probably didn't help things. But no, it got flagged up as being possible fake news on Facebook. It's probably the kind of thing that the big tech companies would kick you off social media for saying. Yeah. But the evidence is all there for anyone who wants to look at it. But no one's really paid any attention to it. Inconvenient Realistically, there isn't. Truth, uh, isn't hmm? It's an inconvenient truth. There's another film for Al Gordon to make. Is that yeah. smoking <laughs> made fight off COVID? It gets slightly less celebrity traction with that, you know. It, it, yeah, it's a it's a remarkable, um, a very interesting, you know, set of studies. And I say there are kind of dozens of them now, but almost no interest shown in them whatsoever. Perhaps because I mean, obviously the 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 implicit kind of policy decision would be we should encourage people to start smoking cigarettes. No one's ever going to do that, so they kind of ignored it. But you think really science should be beyond that. They should just say, well, look, we, we, we study these things. We let the cards fall where they may. Let's at least kind of acknowledge this. Because if it was the other way around, you could never hear the end of it, right? If oh, the, yeah, yeah. the I smokers mean, were more likely to get COVID, then they, that would be, there would be probably a ban smoking by now. You know? I mean, that's one of the things that I've just picked up on following you that you draw attention to. It's how many of these things are moral crusades, right? Like the the minimum price. I noticed this from yourself recently in Scotland. The minimum pricing on alcohol. It hadn't. What was it? It hadn't lead, led to any reduction in crime. Yeah, it was supposed to. Apparently, it was supposed to lead to three and a half thousand fewer crimes. They were very specific in these models. It's modelling again. I mean, this is really bad politically driven modelling again. And so what and, they've done um, is they've decided. It's got to be more expensive still. That's what the yeah, public health group, groups say. Yeah, 50p is not enough. It should be 65p. Then we're going to start to really see some benefits from this policy. I mean, maybe, you know, circling back a little bit, it does come down to the petrol thing is if they just realised how expensive alcohol could be. I mean, if there's one country in the world where they could test the limits of what we pay. I mean, Scotland. Yeah. if the starting point for a pint was six quid and, and that was no cheaper anywhere else... I mean, let's be honest, what would happen in this country is that we probably wouldn't pay it, but then we'd, we'd all start brewing our own and we'd start dying in our houses because we're poisoning ourselves by just drinking straight methane and ethanol, right? Yeah, that's what the, that's basically what happens in Scandinavia, or has done historically. There's huge home distilling um, you know, uh, hobby going on over, over places like Norway and, and Finland especially. So, yeah, they, they absolutely create their own moonshine, drink it. I don't know if it sends them blind or kills them. They're probably quite good at doing it, the clever people, the Scandinavians. But they definitely do it a lot. And so would you if you had to pay £10 for a 330ml bottle of Holstein. Yeah, I've got to say that whatever's happening on that score in Scandinavia, I think it's going to be 10 times worse here. That's my modelling prediction. Um, just going back to the list here, I do think there is something funny, and this is something I've never understood about smoking, is uh, taken up smoking. It's, it's great that it shares the word with like hobbies like golf knitting and other things <laughs> i don't know when that point with somebody who smokes right when, when whatever age you are you have a few and then you go oh yeah quite like you know that point where someone's committed every day i'm a smoker like what is that rubicon is, is there a point in your brain that you're someone that's gone from the fags to vaping you obviously enjoy smoking is 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 when do you self-identify in your brain as a smoker how long does it take did you know immediately or did you have to sort of build up your tolerance Pretty, pretty quickly, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I was never sort of in denial about being a smoker. It's quite hard when you're smoking 20 or 30 cigarettes a day to deny that. Do people do that? I mean, there's a lot more social smokers around than there used to be. You know? Yes, yeah. I, I've got no respect for them. As, as time's gone on, I've gone... To, to the point where if someone's paying over a tenner for a box of 20, that's the first time I've ever considered taking it up because I've gone, it must be pretty good, actually, because I, I never had any respect for it as a hobby or a habit until it went over a ten or a box, I was like, "Yeah, why? Well, why are they doing it? You know what I mean?" Well, it shows how much consumer surplus people were getting out of it when it was like a pound a pack, right? I mean, was that just the legacy of the Second World War? Was everyone had anxiety disorders, and if you'd have just withdrawn cigarettes at that point, <laughs> you'd have had like a lot more killings. Because I can just remember, you know, when I was a kid, there was just this kind of like inheritance of anxiety where obviously they didn't speak about. Uh, the bombs, but they did sort of like surround themselves in alcohol and nicotine yeah. as a coping mechanism. Maybe we could learn something from that. All this fucking counselling, all this medication, if we just took back, took up some of the old habits, you know, 
relative, you know, two or three alcoholic drinks a day, maybe smoking 10 a day, we might find that, yes, we live shorter, maybe overall, but, uh, you know, we spend, we spend less time sitting on the couch fucking whining. Yeah, I mean, smoking rates are at record lows. Are we any happier as a society, really? I don't want to get too pro-smoking about this at the end of your podcast, Jeff, but are we actually a happier and less anxious society? Or are we, in fact, more of a hypochondriac and neurotic society? I would say probably the latter. I think Let's we split we, the difference and bring back pipe smoking. Pipe smoking is not all that bad for you. Pipes, yeah, pipe smoking. And it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a good way of making a drug addiction look wise. There's very few drug addictions look wise, are there? Very good for making a point. Christopher Snowden, thank you very much for coming back on What Most People Think. Pleasure. Yeah.